you have your Bibles, you can um, open them with me to what's well, really the next section, uh, just after what we looked at last night, Colossians 1, um, 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, I need to be turned up. Whoa, that seems a little hot. Is that okay? Um, well, I think that we all know well by now that our theme this week is, is <laughs> what are you doing over here? Oh, I'm good. Am I still on? Do I need to be turned up more? What if I just talk louder? A little bit. It's okay. I got you. Is this good now? Is that good? Okay. Well, great. Okay, well, um, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, um, as you well know, is it's painted on your shirts and your water bottles. Our theme this week is stained and so what we'll be doing throughout the week, uh, Tom and myself, is using um, that image to get at different parts of Colossians and what it means for us to follow Jesus more fully. Um, last time, if you remember, and if you don't, it's okay, um, we concluded by saying that, that you know the gospel has stained you. Uh, two things, right? You know the gospel has stained you if it's coming out of you in such a way that the church says thank you. The church is thankful for you, and secondly, that you know the gospel is uh, is coming out of you if you're coming into more of it in such a way that you're supremely growing in your gratitude for Jesus Christ as the one who has claimed you as his own. And tonight, what we're going to look at is Paul really launches into this extremely, you know, uh, yeah, famous Christological hymn. He wants to tell you more about the one who has claimed you as his own. So let's read that together now. Colossians one. Verses 15 through 20. I'm actually going to back up and start with 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Who is he? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you once again for your word. and um, We come believing tonight that um, your word will do what you say it will do, that you will attend uh, the speaking and the preaching of your word with your spirit. Would you come to us now and would you... Um, cause us to be nourished on the person and work of Jesus. But we pray that you would fill us with him. In your name. Amen. Now you probably know by now because I've told stories in the past and they'll be repeated. Um, that uh, I have a three-year-old son named John Randall. And one of the fun things, I don't know if he's old enough yet, but I'd be taking him anyway, uh, is, is we take him to see movies now. And one of the, it's a great excuse for me to go see Pixar movies. Because Pixar started after, yeah, exactly, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Pixar was, the company was founded after I kind of grew up, and so um, I grew up in the old Disney cartoon movies, which were great. 
But I love Pixar movies. And one of the things I love about them is Pixar does a great job of operating on two levels, don't they? I mean, if you're an adult and you see those movies, there's always something in there for you, whether it's a funny line that just sort of flies over the kids' heads or a piece of nostalgia that they just don't get. And there's always, they leave something for you. They make it fun for both of you. Well, this was confirmed for me recently when I went and, and took John Rowan to see Toy Story 3. Well, I'm not going to give anything away if you haven't seen it. Don't worry. I'm sort of leaving. Um, but uh, it's a great movie. And at the end of the movie, there is um, a sentimental scene. I won't give it away. And as I was watching the scene, I felt my throat harden a little bit. And my, sort of my eyes got glassy. And I had to stop and say to myself, man, you need to pull it together. This is a movie about toys. But I thought as I was you know, doing that, I was like, I wonder how the rest of the audience is reacting. So I kind of looked around, and all the adults in the movie theater are just losing it. And all the kids are sitting there eating their popcorn, this dumb smile on their face, completely oblivious to the sorrow of outgrowing their childhood. And the adults are an emotional wreck. And, and none more than this, um, the, the biggest guy in the theater, he was this huge, bald, football player-looking guy, and he was holding his wife's hand and just weeping. I'm talking about just losing it, just kind of patting him on the back. It was cute. I'm thinking to myself, I mean, Pixar's just owning this guy. I mean, they, have, you know, they, have, they are holding his heart in their hands. And if you've seen the movie, you know that in some ways that's really kind of the theme of the movie itself. Again, I won't give anything away. But the theme of the movie is that, that being owned by someone, right, is better than not being owned by anyone at all. Being owned by someone is much better than not being owned by anyone at all. Now, we just read a passage in which Paul wants the Colossians to know that they've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And what, basically what he's saying there is that Jesus owns you. The Colossians don't belong to anyone except him. And according to Paul, that's a glorious reality. According to Paul, for you tonight, it is a glorious thing for you to be claimed, to be finally and fully owned by the king of the universe. Now, how does this relate to our thing of being stained? Well, I want you to think of, uh, of being stained tonight in terms of having a tattoo. Okay, not one of those cheap, temporary henna deals, but a real tattoo. Okay? Um, uh, you know, a lot of times we use tattoos today, for, I mean, almost solely tattoos are used today for decorative purposes. Um, but tattoos are once used as a way of claiming ownership over a particular person. So slaves were actually tattooed as a way of indicating that they were in the possession of another. In thoroughbred horses, even they, they, they get these brands underneath their lips, these tattoos under their upper lips, as a permanent sign of their breeding. A tattoo for the longest time really was, uh, um, it was a brand of ownership. It was a permanent stain of ownership. And what Paul wants the Colossian church to know is that they have been tattooed by Jesus Christ. They have been permanently stained as his property, and they belong only to him and only to his kingdom. And so it is with you. You know, I think one of the most popular sentiments that's sort of floating around our culture today is that maturity means for you growing up into your own kind of person, right? It means learning to own yourself. 
It means that really what you have to do is to discover who you really are and then to live in compliance with this sort of ongoing uh, self-discovery. So one of our mottos is what? Be true to yourself. Right? Build your own kingdom. Be your own master. But nothing could be further from the truth for Paul. You are not your own. I want you to think about that for a second. You are not your own. You have been purchased at a price and you have actually been transferred over to the possession of the Son. And so maturity means for you as leaders, it means learning to live your lives as the property of another. It's though you have a permanent stain, a permanent tattoo on your very soul that has marked you out for His glory. In the next few verses, Paul really has a simple mission. He just wants to tell you more about the one who has claimed you as his own. And in order for Paul to do that, and I think you have an outline on your sheet, but in order for him to do that, he's going to make two general points tonight. The first is this. The one who owns you also owns all of creation. Okay, you can see that very plainly in the passage. And secondly, the one who owns you also owns all of the new creation. I'll tell you what that means here in a second, but Paul basically says this. The one who owns you owns all that there is, and the one who owns you also owns all that will one day be. Let's look at those in turn. Let's start by rereading verses 15 through 17. Just say this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Um, you may know this, but Christian theology, one of the things that Christian theology does is it draws lines in order to make doctrinal distinctions. Okay, now you know this already, but for instance, we draw a line as Christians, right, between faith and works. Correct? Not your head if you're with me. Okay, get that. So salvation is by faith alone and not by working hard and doing good things. Faith and works for us are in two different categories. We also draw a line between Scripture and the church. And here's the line we draw there. Scripture alone, we say, is authoritative. So any authority that the church has is only derivative. She has no authority in and of herself, but only that which has been given to her by Jesus Christ through the Scripture. The Scripture and the church are in different categories. We draw a line between, this is very obvious, the administrations of the Old and New Covenant. The Old Testament and New Testament. And so in the Old Covenant, they used to sacrifice animals that would point forward to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In the New Covenant, we celebrate His sacrifice, the finality of it, in the Lord's Supper. The Old and New Covenant for us are in different categories. But the most important line that Christians draw in all theology, the line on which all other lines depend is the line that separates the Creator from His creation. It's very simple. God is over here, and everything else is on this side of the line. And Paul tells you what that is here. He says it's everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He doesn't want to miss anything. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, everything else is on this side of the line. And here's the thing. Nothing that's on this side of the line can actually cross over 
and take upon itself the power and privileges of the Creator. No part of creation belongs on the same side of the line as God. That is one of the most fundamental beliefs that all Christians, no matter what branch of Christendom you're in, share in common. Here's Paul's point. Jesus Christ, first and foremost, belongs on a different side of the line than you. He does not belong on the side of creation. He belongs on the side of the Creator. Now, what does that mean for you practically? Well, let me see if I can illustrate it like this. Um, when my son was almost two, my wife went away for a girls' weekend, you know, and left him with me. Um, so I wanted to do something fun, and, um, you know, it was my first sort of adventure with him by myself. And so I decided I was going to take him to get his first pet. And I took him, and oh, all right. You might want to hold that. <laughs> um, uh, and so I took him to get a... Uh, um, uh, his first pet was a beta fish named Bruce. Um, John Randall loved Bruce. Um, he would wake up in the morning and want to see Bruce. He loved feeding Bruce little fish pellets. Um, he loved, he was just learning to talk. He loved the, the way that, that his name sort of rolled off his tongue. He would say Bruce. And all that ended one day as I was cleaning Bruce's bowl over the sink. Exactly. Uh, Pouring the water out oh so carefully as I'd done a hundred times before, and Bruce made the fatal mistake of jumping over the lip of the fishbowl, and I mean, it, 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 could, it could have been more perfect, right down the hole in the garbage disposal. Now, I want you to know before you sort of think I'm a terrible dad, I did all I could. Reached my fingers down there, I thought about taking the drain apart, um, but Bruce was too far down the drain. I'm not going to tell you how the story ends, I'll just tell you it had a merciful ending, you can fill in the blame. Um, I know that sounds cruel, and I know, sort of, you know, this is my first son, I wanted to sort of, I think, um, one of the cardinal rules of parenthood, right, is don't kill your kids' pets. So I felt like a failure. But I, I tell you that sort of illustrate a point, because when Bruce slid down the drain, at that moment it was an uh-oh moment, you had those, right? Like, this is a bad thing, I can't do anything about it. Can't bring Bruce back. I can't undo the past. I can't speak and conjure Bruce out of nothing. At that moment, I was loudly reminded that I was not the creator. The distinction that Paul makes here between Christ as the creator and everything else as a creature is a loud reminder for us tonight. And we need to hear this. That we're not God. It is a loud reminder for us that all of us belong on a different side of the line than Jesus Christ. And if you read verses 15 through 17 closely, you'll notice what Paul wants you to do. He wants you to associate the creative work of Jesus Christ with Jesus' ownership over everything. And so Paul says this, not only were all things created by him, but he writes in verse 16, they were created for him as well. So all things belong to him. And what this means for you and me is just this. That Jesus' ownership of everything, Jesus' ownership of everything always trumps your ownership of anything. His ownership of everything always trumps your ownership of anything. At best, all you and I ever are are stewards of someone else's stuff. You get that? It's all his stuff, and at best, all we are is stewards of it. And what this means for me is this. It means that Bruce didn't belong to me. 
Bruce belonged to Jesus. Now that was, you know, I, I'm kind of okay with that. We weren't that close. But it also means that my stuff doesn't belong to me either. And that's a little bit harder because I, I bought that stuff. That feels like it should belong to me. And, you know, it also means that my students at SMU don't belong to me. And it's still harder because I work long hours sometimes. And when you work long hours for something, you kind of feel like you should at least get partial ownership. Like you should have a say in it. And it also means that my children don't belong to me. And there's no place for me personally that my heart will fight harder to come across the line and to assume the power and privileges of the Creator than when it comes to my kids. And we all have that. We all have something in, in creation that is so dear to us that, frankly put, we don't trust Jesus to have. It means that I don't belong to me. I belong to Jesus. And I know we say that and know we believe it, but really what we believe is that we've got an arrangement with God that it's basically like an apartment superintendent. If we get that he owns the place, we pay our rent by going to church and doing a few good things, and our affections and our time and everything else belongs to us. We pay our dues. But our thoughts, what we decide to do, really belongs to us. This is you tonight as well. And it was true of Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember how the fall occurred? Do you remember... Uh, the temptation itself. What was it? It was, it was fruit. That's good. But behind that was the temptation to what? To be like, to go across the line. It's internal to who we are. We are simply not content to live as creatures. We all desperately want to be on the same side of the line of Jesus, making ownership claims about something in creation that is dear to us. And what Paul wants you to know is that no matter how hard you struggle, no matter the intensity with which you try and hoard something away for yourself, you just can't move across the line. You can never come across the line. The best you can do, the best any of us can ever do, is to trust the one who supremely owns us. That the one who supremely owns you is also the one who supremely loves you. And that's what Paul wants you to see in verses 18 through 20. I want you to see this, that though you can never come across the line, that Jesus actually crossed the line for you. That though you can never assume the power and privileges of the Creator, that Jesus has crossed the line, and He has assumed the weakness and the subjection of the creature. Why? Because He loves you. And this is always the place where your trust in God is formed. Okay? You will never trust the ownership of Jesus over you. Until you begin to trust the love of Jesus for you. And that's what Paul makes so vivid in verses 18 through 20. Let's read that again together. He is the head of the church, the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. According to Paul, what we see here is that the love of Jesus is actually made manifest in the pain that he has endured on our behalf. So Paul is saying like this, and this isn't the only point the passage is making, but it's an important point. That unlike the old creation, the new creation, the church, the resurrection from the dead, all that we will one day be born into, the new creation, unlike the old creation, is forged out of suffering. 
Jesus crosses the line between creator and creation, and he takes on our flesh. Then Paul says he willingly goes to the cross, making peace by his blood. And what that means is that he actually spent himself. He spilled himself for us. And we always talk about that, but then we forget that he was buried. And the Apostles' Creed, we say that he descended into hell. Have you ever heard that thought? What in the world do we mean? That he endured the curse of death for us. That he confronted the hell that we actually welcomed into the old creation. And then you've got to love Paul's language. It's like the scene of a movie, like a, a prison break. He says he's the firstborn from among the dead, like he's broken out of prison. And the image is that Jesus is literally in the new creation as our hero, and he is pulling the church with him as our hero pulling us out of our deadness in order to make us beautiful and alive and participants in his glory. Jesus is the owner of all things. But you have to see this. His ownership is always in the service of his love for you. I don't know if you've heard the story of Sarah Trochalski or not. But it's one of my favorite sports stories of probably the last three years. Sarah was a senior softball player at the University of Western Oregon. And in her softball career, she had never had a home run in her life. She finds herself a bat at the end of the season against one of their rivals, Central Washington. Sarah's five foot two, an outfielder. She's at bat with one strike against her. There are two people on base, someone on second and on third. Next pitch comes. Sarah uncorks her best swing, and she hits one into the ballpark. Of course, the crowd goes crazy, right? The dugout goes crazy, and the two people on base cross home plate, and they look back to welcome Sarah in, to wait for her, to give her a high five, but no Sarah. Their eyes glance around the base pass, and what they see is that Sarah is writhing in pain, crumbled up by the dirt on first base. You see, in all of her excitement, Sarah actually missed first base, and when she turned around to touch the bag, her ACL gave out. Boom, she fell straight down. Now, the rules in softball are interesting. I don't know the internal rationale of this, but if a teammate were to touch Sarah at all at this point, she would immediately be called out. Runners go back to where they were, her home run erased. If um, her coach, Pam Knox, were to put in a substitute runner for Sarah, the home run would be annulled and she would be given a double. And so one of the runners would go back and her home run would be erased. And so Pam Knox, the coach, was about to do the only thing she could do, which is send in a substitute runner for Sarah, when all of a sudden a voice spoke up and asked, would it be okay if we carried Sarah around and helped her touch the bag? And it was a, the voice of Mallory Holman, who was a senior star on the other team, who also coincidentally had the most home runs in her school's history. The umpires came and they conferred and they said, yeah, it would count. With that being said, Holtman and her teammates picked up Sarah's broken body and they carried her around the bag. She touched every base for her first and only career home run. Now, Western Oregon went on to win that game 4-2 only because of Sarah's home run. And this is actually the way that her career ended. She was a hero because of the grace and mercy of someone who was supposed to be her enemy. Mallory brought Sarah to a place that Sarah could have never gotten to on her own. That's what Paul wants you to see when you look and see Jesus. That Jesus is your owner. But he actually uses his authority not to diminish you, 
not to restrict you, not to make you less than what he wants you to be, but to bring you to a place that you can never get to on your own. Jesus gives his life away to bring victory to the church, to make sinners like you and I into heroes. What's the application? The application is this. Remember that Jesus owns you. He has permanently stained you. You have a tattoo on your soul that marks you out for his glory. And what does that mean for us? Well, it's a call for us to live in the joy of that. In the joy of God's sovereign love, reminding ourselves over and over again that we're not owners. All we are in our best days is stewards. And that just as ownership, Jesus' ownership, is always in the service of his love for the church, so our stewardship should always be in the service of our love for him. Listen to me. All that we are, all that we have, whether you have a lot or a little, if you're confident in his owning love, in his sovereign love, everything that you are will be held out to him, not with finch, but with fists that are clenched tight, but with palms that are, that are wide open. What are you scared of tonight? What are you scared of? What are you trying to own for yourself that really belongs to Jesus in the first place? And Paul says this, instead of holding your, your, your fist in a, in a clenched position, will you look back instead at the cross and be reminded that whatever you're holding, whatever that is for you, that it can be trusted in those nail-pierced hands. That the hands that you can place those things into are actually good hands. You know, I heard a story once about a church on the Atlantic coast. One of the ministers, this is kind of funny, he owned a fleet of tugboats, and he was moved by a sermon one day. And so he came to the pastor afterwards and said, hey, I want, to, I want to give the church one of my tugboats. I don't know if the church is supposed to be the tugboat, but I want to give the church one of my tugboats. The pastor said, we don't want your tugboat. Um, he said, no, you don't understand. I know it may not be of use to you, but I want to give it to the Lord's work. You can sell it. You can do whatever you want to with it. And the pastor said to him, that's not what I meant. The Lord doesn't want your tugboat. What he really wants is you. Because if he has you, then he owns all of your tugboats. If the love of Jesus has captured you, if it has captured your heart, then the stain of his ownership you'll find is not a burden. It's actually a delight. And you'll gladly open your hands up. And return all things in service to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you tell us over and over. From the garden when you hugged us in those animal skins, our first parents. That you are intent on preaching to our hearts over and over again that you are good. That you are not just the owner of all, but that you are also good. And that you love your people. And so... Lord, we pray that you would increase faith in us, that you would increase trust in us, that we would see your hands open to us, and that we would see their good hands. Would you do that, Father, as we think about what that means for us now? Would you help us to name our fears? What are we scared that Jesus will do with us? Father, and remember that the one who owns us is the one who crossed the line on our behalf and endured the penalty 
for our sin. We pray in your name, Jesus.